Thank you so much. The, the blessing and the privilege is mine. I am honored to be here tonight and especially be able to sing after that wonderful, wonderful music. I, I don't say this to be unkind to anybody else, but Brother Rock, you know that what I'm about to say is true. Most of the places where we preach, the music is so bad. I'm talking about the, the, the music leader looks like he's auditioning to be an undertaker, embalming fluid coursing through his veins, and sad faces of the choir look like they ran over their pet dog on the way to Sunday school, and it digs a deeper hole than a, in 25 minutes than a 45-minute sermon can crawl its way back out of. That has not been the case tonight. Thank you, Hillcrest Choir. I needed that tonight, and I am personally indebted to you for your ministry of music. To all who have led in worship tonight, thank you so much for leading us to the throne of the Lord Jesus. Well, let me just get right to the text and invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. For any deacons, that's right before 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tonight, one of the hallmark chapters of the Word of God. As good Bible students, you know that 1 Corinthians 15 is a great chapter, 58 verses dedicated to one great doctrinal truth, namely the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and its practical application, its implications on all those who have come to know Jesus Christ by God's grace through faith. And so tonight, I just want to preach from four simple verses, beginning in verse 8 through verse 11. And from these four verses tonight, I want to speak to you about the amazing grace of God. If you're physically able and willing to do so, I'll invite you to stand to your feet as we show our public reverence for the reading of God's inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative, and completely sufficient Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 8, this is the testimony of the Apostle Paul. And last of all, he, Jesus, was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet, that means I'm not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. This is the Word of our God. Let's pray together for a moment. Father, thank You tonight for the marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. Tonight I pray all who are longing to see your face this very night, this very moment, they would truly believe. And I pray tonight that Christ would be glorified through the preaching of this message about his resurrection power and his amazing, wonderful grace. We ask our prayer and submit it to you in Jesus' name. The people of God said, Amen. Be seated, please. Tonight... We're speaking about grace, and I know that I'm in a Thursday night Bible conference crowd, and you're well familiar with what the Word of God teaches about this great subject of grace. Grace has been defined as the unmerited favor of God. In fact, one of my favorite gospel groups, the Tally Trio, years ago sang about the unmerited favor of God. Grace has been described also by the acrostic, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's 
expense. The word grace appears 159 times in the Bible, and you'll find it from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of the Revelation. It first appears in Genesis chapter 6, where God looked over humanity and saw that mankind was corrupt and evil and his heart was wicked all the day long. But the Scripture says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace is sometimes confused with mercy. Sometimes we think that grace and mercy are identical. Now, I like to call them twins. They're not the same thing, but they're really closely connected. I'll describe it like this. Grace is when I get something good that I don't deserve. Mercy is when I don't get something bad that I do deserve. I believe I'll say that again. Mercy is when I don't get something bad that I do deserve. Grace is when I get something good that I don't deserve. Mercy gets me out of hell. Grace gets me into heaven. Mercy washes my sin away. Grace imputes to me the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace takes me off the path of hell, or mercy takes me off the path of hell. Grace puts me on the road to heaven. I'm preaching tonight about the amazing grace of God. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul writes this great discourse about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and in so doing, he's led by the Spirit to just insert his personal testimony. And tonight I want us to look at three things that Paul realized that he did not deserve. Note with me in verse 8 that first of all he says, I'm undeserving of any compassion. I don't deserve the compassion of the Lord. I heard the story of a college student that turned in a term paper and got it back with a big fat red zero at the top of the page. And he went to make an appointment with the professor. He said, I don't think I deserve a zero. And the professor said, well, I don't think you do either, but that's the lowest grade they'll let me give you here at the school. Paul would say, hey, that's my testimony. I deserve less than a zero. He's undeserving of any compassion. Now, there are two things that I want to show you about that right out of verse 8, and I hope you'll keep your Bible, your Bible app open. I'm just going to work my way back through these verses of the Bible. Note with me first that he says, my sin was great. My sin was great. Verse 8, and last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. Now, the context of the passage is simply this. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins according to the Scriptures, and He was buried, and He rose again the third day according to the Scripture. And after that, the Bible says He was seen of Cephas and then of the twelve. Now, we know there are only eleven at that time. Judas had hung himself, but the twelve is just a way that the Spirit of God describes the, the whole group of the apostles. And then on one occasion, He appeared to 500 people at one time. Some folks say they must have been hallucinating. 500 folk don't hallucinate the same thing at the same time. And after appearing to all of these many brothers and sisters, giving what Luke called many in, uh, uh, irrefutable convincing proofs for a period of 40 days, Jesus Christ ascended on a cloud back to the right hand of God the Father. And by the way, the angel said he's going to come on those same clouds just like you saw him go into heaven. And sometime later, the, the, the man named Saul of Tarsus was minding his own business, arrest papers in his coat pocket, if you please, headed off to Damascus to arrest and even put to death those that were followers of this new, he believed, blasphemous, heretical way called Jesus Christ. When all of a sudden, he was arrested by the marvelous grace of God. I'm talking about the high sheriff of heaven hunted him down on that Damascus road, knocked him flat on his back, and a voice out of that shining light appeared 
to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he asked some good questions. Who are you and what do you want? He said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul here in this text tonight calls that an appearance that was out of due time. Why in the world does he describe it that way? In fact, that word in verse 8, that phrase, out of due time, is actually a translation of one single word in the Greek of the New Testament, and this is the only place you'll find it in all of the Bible. I don't mean to be crude or crass tonight, but Paul says, I was born out of due time, and he uses a word that literally means, I was a miscarriage. Some would say it's even stronger than that and say that Paul uses a word that says, I was an abortion. Now, we know what we believe about the taking of unborn, preborn life created in the image of God, but Paul is not using the word in that context. Here's how, he's, here's how he uses it. He says, when other people were born again, it seemed nice and neat. It made a lot of sense. But I was born again in a way that doesn't make sense to anybody it doesn't even make sense to me. He says, it's as if I'm standing here, although I had been aborted. Let me just baptize it in the South Georgia vernacular of my upbringing. He says very simply, I don't have any business being here. Why? Because my sin was great. Does anybody in the building tonight acknowledge you don't have any business being washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, saved by His power, and transformed by His grace? You had always been dressed up on a Thursday night in the the house of God. You know what it's like to have the smell of cheap Marlboro on your breath and liquor and running with wild women and living for the things of the world. Paul said, that was my life. Not that I was living an immoral life, but I was far away from God. I have no business being in the family of God. My sin was great. Now, he describes the greatness of his sin in a way that many of us would not fully understand. He says very simply in our text tonight at the end of verse 9, I persecuted the church of God. I am convinced Paul never got over being a persecutor of the church. He references it in the book of 1 Timothy. He references it in his spiritual resume in Philippians chapter 3. And brothers, I am convinced that Paul never got over being a persecutor of the church, and that's primarily because that's what was being preached about the day that he got saved at the Damascus Road Baptist Church. The big preacher showed up and talked to him about the fact that he was persecuting the church of God. By the way, if you read the uh, resume of Paul over in Philippians 3, there was a time that he would have bragged about being a persecutor of the church, but now he's ashamed of it and says, because of that, I don't have any business being born again. That's one good sign that you've truly been saved. Stuff you used to be proud of, you're not proud of it anymore. Stuff you used to put on Facebook, you don't brag about it anymore. Stuff you used to put on Twitter, you don't brag about it anymore. Stuff you used to go to your friends at the workplace and brag about that you did on Friday and Saturday night, you don't brag about it anymore. You're ashamed uh, of what you used to be and you're not proud of how you used to live. Paul says very simply, my sin was great. Now I want to ask a question tonight. Why does Paul talk about the greatness of his sin? I mean, isn't he the one who taught us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
Isn't Paul the one that taught us in Romans 8 and verse 1 that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Didn't Paul teach us in Romans 4 and in the book of Galatians that we've been justified and that simply means that we've been declared righteous in the sight of God? Why would such a learned theologian bring up the, the ugly, nasty sinfulness of his past? I believe he does it to set it as a contrast against the glory of Jesus Christ. For he not only says my sin was great, he says my Savior was greater. I wonder is there anybody tonight that's glad that Jesus is a better forgiver of sin than you are a committer of sin. I like the way the hoppers put it in that great old song. Grace will always be greater than sin. Calvary has proven it time and again. Whatever you've done, hey, and wherever you've been, God's grace will always be greater than sin. Notice what he says again in verse 8. And last of all, he was seen of me as one born out of time, from the least of the apostles, and am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. I believe Paul takes us on this little trip down the dark alley of memory lane just to let us see the brilliant glory of the one that he met on the Damascus road. He is actually emphasizing in this passage what Christ has done for him. Note with me again, if you would please, in verse 8. And last of all, he was seen of me also. Now, even though Paul uses the word me, pay very close attention to this. He's actually emphasizing the grace of Jesus. Now, in many of our churches, our members talk about themselves, and they've got a me problem and an I problem. But here, when Paul says he was seen of me, he's emphasizing how low he is and how high Jesus is. I want to read the verse again, and I want, to, I want to tell you the way that I think Paul would share it tonight. Made sense that he appeared to Simon Peter. Made sense that he appeared to John. Made sense that he appeared and revealed himself in his resurrection to James. Made sense that he appeared to Matthew. Made sense that he appeared to Mary and Martha. But I've come tonight to testify... The lovely Lord Jesus appeared to me, of all people, me, after all I've done, me, after where I've been, me. Oh, yes, y'all too dignified over here. I said, after all I've done, and after all I've failed to do, and after all I've been, and after all I failed to be, that the virgin born, sinlessly living, sacrificially dying, bodily resurrected son of the living God would show his mercy to me. Oh, my sin was great, but my Savior was greater. Paul just dusts off a spot and talks about the greatness of the grace of God. In this building tonight, our spiritual enemy, the devil, is in the business of telling two of the greatest lies he ever tells. He'll tell one person in the building, you're so good, you don't have to be saved. He'll tell somebody else, you're so bad, you don't need to be saved. And both of those are a lie right out of the pits of hell. I've shared this with you before, I believe, but I love the way that the great black preacher E.V. Hill used to tell it at his church. You see, at Dr. Hill's church, they organize their outreach ministry 
around the primary sin that you got saved out of because that's who they'd send out to make visits. He would tell it like this. Uh, some folks would come back in from visitation night. I'm talking about when they'd go out and try to win people to Jesus. And some of the men would come back in and they'd say, we were down at Skid Row, ran into a drunkard. By the way, you know the difference in a drunkard and an alcoholic? The drunkard don't have to go to all those classes. <laughs> ran into a drunkard and he said he'd shot too much whiskey, drunk too much beer. He'd been hung over too many times, knew that he needed to be saved, but he was too much of a drunk. God couldn't save him. Dr. Hill said he'd buzz the secretary and say, get the chairman of my drunkard committee on the phone. I've got a visit he needs to make down to Skid Row. He needs to go down there and tell that old drunk that where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And if God can save somebody like me, God can save somebody like you. Then the ladies would come in. They'd not been to Skid Row. They'd been to the red light district. And they say, Pastor, we witnessed tonight to a prostitute. She had on those high heels and that short leather miniskirt and that old immodest tube top and she said she'd slept with too many men. She'd given her body away. She'd sold herself to pay for a drug habit too many times. Tears ran down her face but she said God could not save her. He'd say I'd buzz the secretary and say get the chair lady of my harlot committee on the telephone. I've got a visit down to the red light district I need for her to make to tell her that there's still a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vow and sinners plunged beneath that flood can lose A-double-L, all of their guilty stains. Paul said, I was a recipient of the marvelous grace of God and I didn't deserve one blessed bit of it. He says, I'm undeserving of any compassion. But I want to talk to some preachers and some Sunday school teachers and faithful church workers for just a minute because he says, not only was I undeserving of any compassion, I was undeserving of any calling. Here he moves from his salvation testimony to his call to ministry. And he tells the Corinthian believers that the same God that did something for him in the past wants to do something with him, in him, and through him in the present. Now, I just said more than what some of you heard, so I'm going to give you another shot. The same God that did something for me in the past wants to do something in me, with me, and through me in the present. And if God chooses to use me, I don't deserve that calling any more than I deserve the compassion that saved me in the first place. Now Paul gives his little ministerial testimony and talks about a couple of things that grace did for him. First of all, I note that grace prohibits arrogance. Note verse 9, grace prohibits arrogance. And verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles that I'm not meet, that is, I'm not fit. I, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. It's worth noting to me that the greatest Christian who ever lived, next to only Jesus himself, called himself the chief of sinners and the least of the apostles. Paul didn't ride his high horse to the synagogue on the Sabbath to declare the unsearchable riches of Jesus. And when the early church gathered on the first day of the week, Paul was not like a lot of preachers I know, including myself, far too many times than I'd like to admit, who are doctrinally straight as an arrow, but they can strut sitting down. Paul said, the grace of God that came into my heart and transformed my life prohibits 
arrogance. Note with me in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I think if Paul were here tonight, he might also say, by the grace of God, I'm not what I'm not. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Years ago, I heard the story of a gospel singer who graduated from his undergraduate studies, and he had committed his life to be a full-time gospel singer, like these great musicians who are with us for this Bible conference. And when he got out of school, he got in his little uh, college student car, you know, the kind that's held together with shoestring and bubble gum. And he rode to his first concert that night. And he was hoping that they were going to pay him in cash because he didn't have much gas in his car. And so he sang that night, and he hung around and hung around and hung around, and finally it was just him and the preacher left. And the preacher shook his hand, and there was a, obviously a little slip of paper in that handshake. So Brother Rock, he did what you're supposed to do. He pretended like he didn't care what it was and stuck it in his pocket. Could hardly wait till he got out to his car to look to turn on the check reading light. That's what preachers call it. All the preacher said. And so he got out there and turned the light on. It wasn't a check and it wasn't cash. It was a thank you note. No money at all. And in anger, he says he began to pray. Lord, I don't deserve this. I surrendered my life to you. Drove all the way up here on faith didn't make them advance me any money, didn't make them sign some commitment. There was no contract. I did it solely on faith to serve you. God, I don't deserve this. And he says the Holy Spirit spoke to his heart and said, you're exactly right, you don't deserve this. You deserve hell. And anything you get above hell, you ought to be grateful for it. Some preacher in the building tonight says, I don't deserve the church where God has sent me to pastor. You are exactly right. You deserve a church where the, where the music minister thinks that Benny Hinn is the 13th apostle. <laughs> Paul says, the only thing I've got going for me is the grace of God. And anything I get above hell is an increase over what I deserve. Now, by contrast, there was a time in Paul's life, though he was a very religious man, Paul was stuck on himself. He was full of himself, but now he's just full of the risen Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. There was a time if you asked Paul, Paul, what's your life song? What's your theme song? He would have said, well, I kind of like Mac Davis. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. But now that he has spent some time serving Jesus and living for Jesus and preaching for Jesus and soul winning for Jesus, Paul, what's your life song now? He'd say, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far. I said grace, not my intellect, grace. Not my ability, grace. Not my experience, grace. Not my education, grace. Not my credentials, grace. Not my upbringing, tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Now, friend, if you'll get that kind of glimpse of the grace of God, it will change your view of your calling to serve Jesus Christ. Won't be any more of this got to serve Jesus. You'll realize 
you get to serve Jesus. You mean they'll let somebody like me sing in the choir? What time do they meet? You mean they'll let somebody like me with my old past teach in the Sunday school, give me a quarterly, tell me where I'm supposed to be, I'll do anything, I'll go anywhere, I get to serve the Lord. You mean y'all will let me give in the offering at this church? You, you, you'll let me get in on what God's doing? Pass me the offering plate and hand me a pen so I can write my check. You'll get a glimpse of the grace of God and you'll realize you've been called to serve Jesus and you don't even deserve that. Paul says very simply that this grace prohibits arrogance. But, but in the same text he says that grace produces action. Grace produces action. Look at what the text says in verse 10. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. I heard the story of a church that bought an old abandoned juke joint and they were going to fix it up for one of these contemporary churches, which if you've been in some of them, it didn't take a lot of fixing up. You're slow, but you're good. And they didn't realize that the old bar owner had left his pet parrot in there. He was living up in the rafters of that old juke joint. And when the day came they were going to have their first church service, the pastor showed up about two hours early to unlock and turn the thermostats on because that's what everybody thinks a preacher's supposed to do. And that old parrot started squawking. Ah, new owner, new owner. About an hour and a half before the service, the band started showing up to do their sound check and rehearse the music for the service. That old parrot started squawking, rawr, rawr, new band, new band. <laughs> 11 o'clock, the, the church showed up and that parrot started squawking, rawr, rawr, same crowd, same crowd, same crowd. <laughs> hey, that'd be funnier if it weren't true. Paul would say to a crowd like that, you didn't get the same grace that I got because the grace that I received did not approve itself to be given in vain. It didn't reveal itself to be empty. But I labored more than everyone else. Now that word vain or empty is a very interesting word. It speaks of something that has a misleading appearance. It looks good from a distance. But when you get up close to examine it, there's nothing to it. Uh, the best illustration of this that I have comes from my own home. My wife and I are blessed with four children ages 7 to 17, including a 15-year-old boy. And uh, sometimes he does something that drives his daddy up the wall because, you see, I love Kellogg's Apple Jacks. I'm talking A is for apple, J is for Jack Cinnamon Toasty Apple Jacks. I believe they're going to be served at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Could I get an amen? I really, really do. And I like to have a bowl of Apple Jacks at midnight. I'm a bit of a night owl. And Brother Rock, there many times I'll pour that bowl of Apple Jacks and I'll go open up the refrigerator and there's that milk jug sitting in the refrigerator. And I, and I go to pick it up and it... 
put this empty milk jug back in the refrigerator. We know who did it. That's the word that the Apostle Paul uses when he describes the impact of the grace of God. He said, when God's grace invaded my life and transformed my, my life from the inside, it did not produce, it, did not, it was not proven to be in vain. It didn't look good from the outside, but prove itself to be empty. Did you know that that describes a lot of Baptist church members, they look real good from a distance. They look real good on sign-up Sunday. But when you go to take a little closer inspection, do a little further examination, there's absolutely nothing on the inside. All talk and no action. All look and no substance. As Jesus might say, all leaf and no fig. Paul said that's not what God's grace did. For me, it started producing some things in my life. Several years ago, we called a new music minister to our church. And when he came, we were in search of a children's choir worker for one of our several graded children's choirs. He hadn't been there but a couple of weeks, and he came in one Wednesday to staff meeting. I mean, he was walking on cloud nine. We opened up the time for prayer and praise reports, and he said, oh, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Sunday, I got me, the children's choir worker, to fill that slot. We all said, wonderful. Who is it? He gave a name, and we're like, oh, dear heavens. <laughs> Who's going to tell him? You going to tell him? I'm not going to tell him. Who's going to tell him? This is a lady that comes about every five or six months, and when she comes, she signs up to be a full-time missionary on the Amazon River down in the jungle. But then you can't even get her to come back that same Sunday night if you'd raise Adrian Rogers from the dead to preach and George Beverly Shea to sing How Great Thou Art. Paul said, my life was not like that at all. I labored by the grace of Almighty God. He had just talked about all of the action that had been produced in his life, and about the time that you think he may be bragging, he said, it wasn't me that was doing it. It was the grace of God living in me and through me that was accomplishing the work. Now, someone in the building tonight may be inclined to say, preacher, you sound like one of those works preachers. My Bible says in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. Gotcha, preacher. Lest any man should boast. You just quit reading one verse too soon. Because the very next verse says, <laughs> For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now lean in close and listen carefully. That means there's no such thing as saving grace that's not also serving grace. Let me make it even more simple than that. There's no grace of God that will save you that does not simultaneously fill you with the person and the power of the Holy Spirit and according to 1 Corinthians 12, 7, give to you the manifestation of the Spirit, a spirit 
spiritual gifting that you're to use for the common good. I'll make it as plain as I know how to say it. There's no such thing as somebody that got saved but doesn't have the ability and the divine appointment to serve Jesus Christ and to do something for Him. Saving grace and serving grace are not two different graces. They are two different manifestations of the same grace. You just flat don't get one, but what you got the other one at the same time. Paul said, I don't deserve any compassion. I don't deserve any calling. Grace prohibits my arrogance, but that same grace produces some action. He says, I'm undeserving of any compassion. I'm undeserving of any calling. And then in verses 10 and 11, he closes this section, I'm undeserving of any credit. In the 1970s and 80s, one of the best-known contemporary Christian singers was a man named Andre Crouch. Now, you may not be familiar with Andre Crouch, but you've probably heard and, and sung his music. It was Andre Crouch who wrote and, and taught us, soon and very soon we're going to see the king. Uh, Andre Crouch said, through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus and I've learned to trust in God. It was Andre Crouch that wrote that little chorus, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him there's no other Jesus is the way. Andre Crouch wrote that the blood that gives me strength from day to day, it will never lose its power. But it was at the top of his career, the height of his notoriety, that he wrote what is arguably his best known song. It's made it into hymnals of all kind of denominations. And the bridge of that song includes these words. Just let me live my life and let it be pleasing, Lord, to Thee. And should I gain any praise, let it go to Calvary. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. To God be the glory for the things that He has done. What's He done, Brother Andre? With His blood He has saved me. With His power, He has raised me. So I'm going to say it with Him. To God be the glory for the things He has done. If Paul were here tonight, he may pull out a handkerchief and have a running spell because he says, I'm undeserving of any credit. Now in these final few words, he says a couple of things about this truth. Number one, he says, I labor by the power of Jesus. Just if you got to thinking that Paul was bragging about all that he had done for the Lord, right as he said, I labored more than all the rest, verse 10 concludes, Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. This is the same truth he would write to the Christians at Galatia in Galatians 2.20. When he said, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul would just say, hey, if there's anything good in me, anything good from me, anything good out of me, it's not because I'm good, it's because he's good. 
and all the honor and all the glory should go to the Lord. He says, I labor by the power of Jesus. You know, there's a major problem going on in the American culture, even on many of our college campuses. It's the problem of plagiarism. In fact, Berkeley University recently did a study of its graduate students and they found that there was plagiarism present in 30% of the research papers turned in at the graduate level. Now you understand what plagiarism is. Uh, you've, um, you, you've stolen somebody's research paper. You, you, you're using somebody else's work and claiming it as your own. This is why many preachers, they've preached Adrian Rogers so much, they're about to start calling their wife Joyce. <laughs> Plagiarism. But, but this passage is not warning us against downloading a term paper off the internet or preaching somebody else's sermon as our own. Paul does not want to plagiarize the work of God. What do I mean by that? I mean, he doesn't want to take something that God has done by his power, by his spirit, and put Paul's own name on it and not mention that God is the one that actually did it. And far too often we are guilty of plagiarizing the work of God. God stirs and God works and God moves and God transforms lives and then we go out and tweet about it like we're the one that accomplished it. Some years ago in the church where I pastor, we had moved into a new sanctuary that year. And I mean, God was, God was just on that church. I mean, it, it, was, it was like you could almost read the back of the phone book and five or six people would be saved. And we had come to the last day of that church year. For us at that time, it was the last Sunday night of August. We had reached and seen 99 people be baptized. And oh, I was so hoping somebody would get saved that Sunday morning. An old boy came down and got saved, gave his heart to Jesus that Sunday. And when I passed him off to the prayer counselor, Pastor, I said, talk to him about coming back and being baptized tonight. And sure enough, he said he'd come back and be baptized that evening. And I told the church before we dismissed that morning, I said, you want to be back tonight, you're going to see something you had not seen in the history of this church tonight. We're going to baptize our 100th person. Well, sure enough, he, everybody showed up right at 6 o'clock. I started trying to get the attention of the music minister at the piano because it was 6.01 and I don't like to start late. And right as I got his attention, every light in the building shut off. I thought somebody had accidentally hit the emergency shutoff button that was on the side of the building that the fire department uses when they shut all the power off. We started looking around trying to find out what was going on and it wasn't long before we figured out that the power was off on that whole fourth of town. And so I stood before the church and I said, you know what? We were going to do some special things tonight. By that time, I mean, everybody had their bulletins out and they were fanning because when the lights went off, the air conditioners went off, and it was the last Sunday of August in South Georgia, all the women looked like they were going through the change. I mean, they're just, just fanning, just fanning. I shouldn't have said that. So... So I said, we're, we're going we're to do several things tonight. We sang uh, Amazing Grace with the piano, no, no, no sound system. We baptized our 100th person, 
we took up an offering. And then we had two miracles happen. Miracle number one is I preached about a seven-minute sermon. I, I, I set my prepared sermon to the side and I just used the darkness of that building and the little light that was coming in through the windows and under the cracks in the door and I turned to the book of Isaiah and I preached about how the people walking in darkness have seen a great light and for those stumbling around in the darkness of the shadows of death, behold, your light has come. Nine people came forward at the end of that seven-minute sermon. Six of them were asking Jesus to be their Lord and their Savior. Now, when I got home that night, listen to me, listen to me now. The Spirit of God was not rebuking me because my heart was not wrong that night, but the Spirit of God was reminding me of something. The Spirit of God said, I want you to stay out of the way and let me do what only I can do. I don't need your band. I don't need your sound system. I don't need your lights. I don't need your lasers. I don't need your mood LED lighting. I don't need your cute little alliterated sermon with your PowerPoint up on the screen. I don't need anything except people who will let me do my work and get out of the way and give me the glory. Paul says, I labor by the power of Jesus. And then finally, he says in verse 11, I live for the praise of Jesus. Look at that 11th verse and we're finished. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Well, I'd have to remind you that there was a big problem going on in the church at Corinth. You can read about it back in chapter 1. It's what we would call preacher worship. Now, some were saying, I'm of Paul. Others said, I'm of Apollos. Some said, I'm of Cephas. And then the real spiritual people said, y'all, they're all backsliders. I am of Christ. They were the kind of people that wouldn't come back on Sunday night if the youth minister was preaching. Where'd y'all go? They were the kind of folks when they heard the pastor was out of town in revival, they wanted to know who was going to be preaching. Now, friend, listen to me clearly. If you ever ask who's going to be preaching when the pastor's not there, it ought to be just because you're curious who you're going to get to hear that Sunday, not because you're deciding whether or not you want to go. Paul says, I've got some news for you. The same grace of God that was working through me and leading people to the cross of Calvary is able to work through anybody else. It'll just open up the book and rightly divide the word of truth. And it doesn't matter whether I was the one preaching or whether they were the one preaching. The only thing that matters is somebody preached and you believed somebody got saved and Jesus got all of the glory. The bottom line is that simple verse means that this church is not about you. And if you're visiting here tonight from another church, your church is not about you. There are a lot of Baptist church members that show up to church thinking that this is Burger King and everything's got to be done your way. Let me just let you in on a secret before I head to my seat. When the people who founded this church built this building and poured this slab and bought these pews and built all of this that's in here, you do understand we didn't do this for you. 
So sometimes when people come and they say, I want you to know I didn't like that sermon. I want you to know I didn't like what the choir sang this morning. It's okay if you don't like it. We didn't do it for you. Paul says, I live for the praise of Jesus. I, I, I had this revealed in my own life about two years ago. I was preaching at a pastor's conference, a Bible conference in South Carolina. And right before I was to preach, they had a group that was there to sing, and it was just not my favorite kind of music. I mean, I wouldn't listen to their Pandora station. I don't have it on my iPod. I don't have it on my playlist. They were singing about Jesus, but it just wasn't my particular favorite. You say, what kind of music was it? Preach, none of your business. They sang three or four songs, and I was sitting over there thinking, man, I wish they'd get finished. I'd get up and preach because I really don't care for this music. And about that time, they said, we're going to do one more. And it was a song about encouragement in a time of the storm. And Brother Rock, I was sitting over here, and there was a pastor sitting right there. And when they started singing, I saw him reach up, start wiping tears. It wasn't long. They're doing that song that I don't like. He reached up in his coat pocket and pulled out his handkerchief. I saw him wiping his whole face. It wasn't long I saw that handkerchief go up in the air. I'm in Tennessee. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Next thing you know, I saw him stand to his feet. That hand was up in the air waving that handkerchief. Next thing you know, both hands were in the air and he was shouting stuff like, Well, bless him! Thank you, Jesus. Glory to God. Lift him up. Hallelujah. Glory. And the Spirit of God asked me a question. Can you be blessed just knowing that your brother's getting blessed and your Father's getting blessed. Paul said, it doesn't matter whether or not you like it, whether I was singing, you were singing, I was preaching, you were preaching, I was shouting, you were shouting. If God's getting the glory, that's what it's all about. And it's all a testament. It's all a testament to the marvelous, amazing grace of God. Father in heaven, would you bless our time in your word tonight. And wherever we are in our life, in our calling, in our service, may we realize it is only your grace that has made us what we are. So all the praise, honor, and glory goes to your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.